Thank you for joining us today. Our goal at the Asia-Pacific Wine and Spirit Institute is to promote cultural diversity through wine education. This podcast is for wine enthusiasts, beginners, and anyone who is interested in learning more about wine and those who work in the world of wine and culture. Check out our website www.abwazi.com and take one of our 30 online wine and spirit courses available. If you're new to this podcast, please follow the show and subscribe if you enjoyed the content. Welcome to the Abwazi Wine Buzz Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Clinton Lee. Welcome to another episode of the Abwazi Wine Buzz. Today's guest is a extremely versatile professional who has been in the retail uh, production and really at the front line where he's literally had his hands dripping in fine wine. The environment has always been that of extremely high-end restaurants, but he is no stranger to the other aspects of the international wine industry. Today's guest is none other than renowned sommelier uh, of the year in Vancouver by the name of Robert Stelmachuk. Thank you for joining us, Robert. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Lee. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more. You know, Robert, you proudly possess, I would say, hard-earned battle scars of the wine industry <laughs> from your various campaigns in the retail, training, management, restaurant, and hotel sectors over the last two decades. But before you embarked on this truly magnificent, adventurous journey of wine and spirits, Share with us who and what is Robert Stelmachuk? Well, that's kind of a loaded question, I think. Uh, who I am? Well, I mean, I was born in Northwestern Ontario in a small town city called Thunder Bay. Uh, certainly wine was never part of my life growing up too much. I, uh, I like to describe it that to me as a child, growing up wine... Basically, the coolest thing about wine was that I could take the bag out of the box and I could blow it up and use it as a pillow when I went camping yeah. as, a, as a Boy Scout. Um, but I mean, I never I never was raised around fine wines. My parents weren't into it or whatnot. Um, I really made that transition when I moved to the West Coast, originally to Whistler. And um, I mean, I had done a little bit of wine training before in college and whatnot um, with a hotel management degree and thought I knew a little bit about wine and moved out here and honestly you know realized that wine can be a way of life in terms of you know a career and what you do for a living actually the concept of being a sommelier where I came from was you just you just don't have any um so moving out here you know I got invested and surrounded myself with the right people um by the time I moved from Worcester down to Vancouver uh, then I really got into things working at William Tell, which was highly coveted, you know, open for what 50 years they were open for and had an opportunity to work with individuals who helped develop my skills 
put me on the right path and helped not only to teach me, but also to very much inspire me in terms of possibilities of what the wine industry can bring to me. So lots of studying, lots of training. Um, I graduated with the back way back when what was originally the Vancouver Wine Academy with Mark Davidson and Park oh. Heffelfinger and then progressed into the International Sommelier Guild, the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, um, the Grand Prix de Sopexa, and then finally I'm still uh, pursuing education to this day 30 years later um, with the Quartermaster Sommeliers. Um, I hold my advanced certified and I'm gearing up to do the final stages for theory service and tasting and uh hopefully or will become the first one of the first uh, master sommeliers on the west coast well we certainly wish you um, all the very <laughs> best and uh, uh if you ever have a tasting um, you know where to find me Robert. <laughs> absolutely absolutely <laughs> but you know share with us um you know what is that spark that ignited you to make the decision to focus your energies on the hospitality and wine industry. You moved out from the, um, you know, from uh, the other Northwest uh, Ontario, Thunder Bay, and you came out here. What was it, a love of a, well, a romance? <laughs> Actually, I got uh, a phone call one day from one of my closest friends, uh, still to this day, Trevor Hanna. Um, he works up at Big White currently. Uh, he had moved to Whistler to help open up uh, a restaurant in the ski resort, uh, which was then called Monk's Grill. Um, and I thought that having resort experience on a resume would be a good opportunity. Also to be part of a team that would be curating the opening of a, of a restaurant and see what that development was like. And as I got out here, it was just insanity, craziness. Whistler was in the booming days in the early 90s. And then I found myself working in restaurants where I found my guests knew more than I did. And I wasn't comfortable with that. Um, I knew a little bit about wine, but when it came to, especially when it came to the William Tell, you know, we had, you know, very expensive wines on the list, a very deep seller. And guests were asking me intricate little details, like, well, what would you recommend between the 61 or the 57? Chateau Ozone or something, and I couldn't answer, but they were expecting an answer. So I started to take it upon myself with a wine coach, then a gentleman named Brian Turner, to learn literally sitting at my kitchen table for four hours every day. Back then, we didn't have the internet. So it was literally, you had to go to a place called Cole's Bookstore. You had to order a book. It came in three or six months later, and you read it and I mean, I think of the uh, convenience of the internet now. Kids have it so easy. I can't even begin to explain. But as I started to learn, I started to get rewarded through creating better guest experiences where I could add wine to the food and create a complete experience for the guests. And then for me, for some reason, it really just kind of took off. It, it, it was the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And that snowball has not stopped today. So... So it wasn't a romance then? Um, no, not really. <laughs> I mean, you know, there was wine on dates, but I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> you know, you know, um, you mentioned your, your, your um, sort of uh, transition from Whistler to Vancouver. I find Vancouver to be quite fascinating. Um, it's, it's not a large city, 
in terms of cosmopolitan international cities, yet it has a very vibrant um, wine um, environment. Why, why do you think that's so? Well, I think despite its size, there is, I, th I still think that there's a big diverse cultural background here. Um, you know, if you want food from almost any cuisine, you can get it. And there are certainly a lot of different ethnici ethnicities that live here. Um, but I found, especially in the last 10, 15 years, the development of that palette of the, of the Vancouver diner has really evolved a lot, going from where people wouldn't ask questions 10 years ago, didn't want to speak to some way, either they were too embarrassed to, or they thought they knew it themselves, to now seeing guests on the floor open and asking questions. I like Pinot Noir from California. What else should I try? That part of the statement didn't really exist, I don't find, 10, 15 years ago. So there's been a big development to it. Um, I think the, the social kind of environmental, whatever it is you want to call it, has developed people to care a little bit more to understanding where things come from. I think the food generation has helped to boost the wine generation. People started caring a lot more about where their food came from. What farm did this pig come from? Where were these vegetables growing? The concept of the 100-mile diets. And when that, when people started paying it more and more attention to, you know, ingredients of what they were eating, then I think that trickled over to what they were drinking. Like, you know, where is this wine from? How is it made? What is natural wine, organic wine, biodynamic wine? Even though I still think all of those things are massively misunderstood by a majority of the population, I think that... Uh, it's coming around slowly. People are starting to understand a bit more about organics and biodynamics and gosh forbid, uh, natural wine. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that for, for another episode. Absolutely. Now, you know, Robert, the last six years have been especially dynamic for you. You were recognized by a local magazine as being the top sommelier in the city of Vancouver. Another accolade was you being selected to be the wine director of Mot 32, a highly regarded Chinese restaurant. Vancouver is internationally recognized as having the best Chinese food in the world. And that has been stated by many food critics and experts. And the pressure to deliver a quality service and food with such immense and impressive competition must be oftentimes extremely hard. What do you do and what did you do to train for such a position? Well, that's a really good question. And that, <clears throat> pardon me, I know that there's a lot, there's a lot of components to this answer, I think. What we do at Mott 32 is, is truly unique. Uh, first and foremost, I will say that there is a lot of amazing Chinese food to be had in Vancouver and in Richmond. I think what's unique about Mott 32, not only the caliber of their food, but our complete package, like Mott can offer everything a diner can want from atmosphere, decor, music, cocktails, wine list. Uh, the wine list alone is unique because you don't get a wine list, certainly not of the caliber that we're trying to offer um, at many other restaurants uh, that offer Chinese food to begin with. So that I think is unique um, in terms of what I did to train for them when I started, when I was approached first about this um, 
would have been probably very late 2015 is when I was first approached about the Mot 32 opportunity. And then in probably spring of 2016 is when I started with them. And after I started, the first thing I did was went to work in Hong Kong, actually, uh, which was turned out to be a tremendous uh, advantage for me. Um, going to work with Mansang Lee, our executive chef for Mot 32, not only to, to, I went to Hong Kong, not only to learn about the brand standards of service and atmosphere and learn what Mott was going to be like in Vancouver, but then I went to work on with the chefs to really take the food apart. Now, I have a pretty strong culinary background. I spent some time in the kitchen understanding food, which really helps me quite a bit. Um, but then to work with the chef for a number of weeks to really understand the cuisine, take each dish apart, understand where flavors are coming from. And then applying what I knew from wine to what we can do and then journey to what we possibly can do and really opened up a lot of doors. And, you know, a lot of people, when it comes to wine and Chinese food, they think in one dimension, they can, they think in sweet Riesling and Pinot Noir, and you can have those things. And we have them on the wine list at Mod 32 here in Vancouver. But if you like Pinot Noir, there are, 10 to 15 other experiences that I could introduce you to that people didn't realize. Uh, Sinso from California or uh, South Africa, uh, really nice, you know, Valpolicella's, Pelo Verga, Schiaba, a lot of grapes that people aren't familiar with or certainly haven't heard, but work amazingly well with the cuisine. And, you know, all the way up the ladder to probably the best secret weapon wine for Chinese cuisine would be well, yeah, it would be Chianti Classico. Um, really, you know, the natural acidity in Chianti Classico pairs incredibly well with the Asian, with the with the Chinese table. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I, and that evolution of what I did to start is constantly evolving as well. I'm, I'm, you know, every three months I do a deep dive rehearsal into what has been working, what can't, where can we go. Um, and always want to create a new experience for the guests that we have at Mod 32 for sure. I'm not sure if that answered your question. That was oh, kind I of think, a lot. It was a big question. Comprehensively, <laughs> comprehensively. Uh, and 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 um, you, you, you know your your list and um, for our listeners who um, are, are not familiar, Mod 32 is a highly prestigious um, restaurant, Chinese restaurant. Um, in, in Vancouver, but I, I think I'd like to add, you know, you mentioned ambiance, music and food. I mean, while those are integral parts of a restaurant, but I, I certainly believe it's also the people, people like you. So it's your culture. When people walk in there, there's that invasive, extremely invasive in the sense of warmth, generosity, they feel they're at home. And that can only be generated from the top down. So that, that is something that I certainly felt when uh, coming in into that restaurant, uh, Robert. So I, I think you need to give yourself uh, some congratulations there. Well, I mean, I appreciate that. And uh, I won't make, I, I won't hide the fact at all that we are a result of our team. Um, the kitchen team is incredibly adaptive and amazing. And the front of the house team that we have, we're very fortunate to have. Um, you know, we recently reopened and I think probably about 90% of the, of the, uh, the front of the house team came back. Incredible people who really care a great deal about what they're doing. 
um, of, and, uh, you know, we do it together as a team, basically. Um, that's, that's kind of how we, we like to do that. We really have a great care for your experience. Uh, we do our very best to create the best guest experience from a complete service uh, aspect and for, for, the, for the guest experience. So, Well, you've certainly achieved that. And I think uh, it's not just the cohesiveness uh, of the team, but there is leadership, which has uh, been clearly displayed by yourself. <laughs> Now, Thank Robert, you. <laughs> you've eaten at some of the best and most prestigious restaurants in the world. For the benefit of our guests, if you were to name three top must-watch-out indicators, indicators that can identify a restaurant as being on top of their game, what would they be? So you wow. walk into a restaurant, what are the top three like litmus tests that you look for? Wow. Um... That's a great question. I think, I think ultimately a lot of it comes down to, you know, how you're from how you're greeted to how you're treated. Basically, I think verbiage is so key in restaurants. And this is something that I try to work with our team quite a bit on. Um, there's a difference if you walk in the door and the hostess says to you, you know, how are you doing tonight versus, you know, how are you this evening? that will kind of set up how things are going to go. Casualness leads to casualties, as we all know. Um, and you don't, you know, you want to be friendly, but not familiar with people. So I look for how I'm treated ultimately by the guests. Um, you know, I think post pandemic, a lot of things have been skewed. And, you know, I've gone to restaurants and felt like I was an intrusion on their evening. And that's never a good thing. So certainly how the staff and the team treats you is going to be a monumental thing. Mm -hmm. And I think honestly, the decor, if you look around and you see things that are broken, light bulbs that are burnt out, uh, you know, deficiencies in the atmosphere and the decor kind of can let you know that you are or not in the right place as well, um, or their current standings. Um, and then, you know, you look at just I always look for the food is the food uh -huh. straight up you know I want food more than anything I want food to be honest I don't want people to overreach too far um, you know I have such an admiration for the chefs that are in here in Vancouver and the restaurants that I've dined in and I basically at the end of it all I want it's kind of like what I look for in a movie <laughs> I I want to go to a restaurant and have an experience that doesn't leave me the way I was when I came in and I'm not just talking about feeding me or getting me drunk. <laughs> I'm yes. talking about, you know, leave me inspired to want to go back to my job and do a better job. I'm very fortunate to work in a community of sommeliers that do that. You know, you asked me one of the things that, that I do to train. I watch closely what the other sommeliers in my community are doing. And they inspire me every day to be better at my job. I think it's fantastic. I look at all the wine lists that I can in town. I go and see what they're serving, how they're serving it, what they're doing. And that inspires me. So if I can go to a restaurant and they can, I can leave being inspired either like, wow, whatever it was, the, the way that presentation was on that dish, the way the waiter recommended a particular glass of wine for me, the way, you know, an after dinner drink, a complete dining experience, uh, whatever it is. Um, I just don't want to be left the same way I was when I came in, you know? Yeah. Understandably, there has to be that factor that sort of um, 
acts as a catalyst to say, wow, would I want to come back here again? What was it? I, I truly understand um, that, that, that emotion because, you know, having, having um, trained um, the five-star association, hotel association in Shenzhen myself and, and the training you went through, there's a deep appreciation for, for the chefs. And often I think the, the chefs in Vancouver are not given enough praise for the hard enduring hours that they go through, the immense pressure that they deal with. And I think both you and I being in the wine industry, it's not only the Vancouver um, chefs, but worldwide, but certainly I would say the ones in Vancouver, they, it's an immensely uh, and, and tight com compet competitive environment here. Of course, absolutely. And, you know, uh, Vancouverites, I think the, the value to dollar ratio on dining in Vancouver is globally incredible. I mean, what you can get at a tasting menu here for $150, you would have to pay $450 in New York for. So the value is there. Um, the demands and expectations of the Vancouver market are set quite high. The bar is really high. It so, um, you know, you have to follow through on all aspects of what you're doing, for sure. Now, you know, you mentioned uh, menus earlier on, Robert. What's a common failing with many wine menus in, in restaurants you find? Well, I mean, you know, Vancouver has a lot of solid menus, well laid out, well presented. Um, the things, what I want from a wine list myself Mm -hmm. I want it uh, to be accessible. I want it to be easy to navigate. Uh, I would like for it to be free of spelling errors. <laughs> I'm not the per most perfect speller, and I'm sure my list has one or two errors, but, um, you know, nonetheless, you want them to be minimalized. But also, I think, I think you don't want massive price gaps. I've seen, I've seen wine lists um, abroad and in town and everywhere that if I decided that I wanted a Pinot Noir and I, from California and you go to look at the selection and there's one at 60 and then the next one is at 180, there's no in between there, right? Um, you don't want too many price gaps on your wine list. Uh, I certainly don't want it, too many price gaps on a list. Um, and then, yeah, you, want, you, you do want it to kind of make it accessible to people. When I built the list for Mott and as I'm currently, you know, redefining it i built the list for comfort i want you to be able to look through let's say you want a california cabernet and you recognize two or three names that you do know a rodney strong or a wente or a name that's common mm -hmm. um, but i also want adventure built in it if you want to have an adventure um, in fact at mott 32 we even offer wine adventure reservations that's another topic um you know so you want comfort you want value you know, I think if, if somebody comes to a restaurant and wants to spend 50 or $60, whatever, wherever your wine list starts, let's say that your wine list starts at $50 a bottle, you should be able to get a decent bottle for $50 a bottle. And, you know, you shouldn't be able to get like just some throwaway. Um, I don't see, I, you know, I see a lot of really good entry level bottles here in Vancouver. So I don't see that problem here very often. Um, but when I traveled before, if I see, you know, I'm going to spend 50 bucks on a bottle, and it's yellowtail or something. I, I, I'm not very excited to buy that wine. Um, so I think if you, if you look for them, like our list starts at $38. That's very reasonable. 
Uh, we don't sell a lot of those bottles, but if you do want to spend that much, they're good bottles to drink. You know, we have uh, the Rhone, Rioja, uh, South of France. There's a few different categories that, that covers those uh, those options and all wines that I would drink at home for sure. So, so in summarizing, we don't want gaps. We want uh, no spelling mistakes. <laughs> uh, we, sh we, 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 we should have um, reasonableness and easy to navigate. I mean, yeah. these are great tips for, for the uh, uh, diner. And yeah, and, the, and, and honestly, the navigation rule, it, it, a lot of that depends on the style of restaurant. If you go to Elisa's Steakhouse, you expect to have a journey in their wine list. It's an extensive list. If you went to, I love, there's a great little restaurant on Fraser called Say Mercy. Simple one-page list, but easy to understand and easy to navigate. So that navigation depends very much so on the style of restaurant that you are. Yeah. So that's the, that's the actual wine menu. Now, let's move on. What top three pointers would you give diners when they're selecting their wine for dinner? Ooh, Oh, wow, another good question. Uh, top three questions. Um, being honest is number one. If someone doesn't know anything about wine, that's totally awesome. And that's honestly what a lot of sommeliers love to hear. Um, you know, if someone, someone said to me on Friday night last week, they're like, you know, all my friends are starting to drink wine. I know nothing about it. I want to buy a bottle of wine. Well, that's perfect. And I can navigate you into what you want to do. Um, but I think, you know, you have to, I don't know. You, I'm kind of, I'm, I, my mind is going in so many different directions with this. Um, well, you have so much experience. to <laughs> <laughs> uh, So what, what should guests ask? Guests should definitely uh, engage if the restaurant has a sommelier. Uh, definitely engage them, ask them questions. That's what they're there for. Um, you shouldn't get any sort of pretension or attitude or anything from the selections or choices that you say you want to have. Have an idea of the style of wine that you want to come to. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't emphasize enough, don't worry about wine ratings. I am uh, on my YouTube channel and whatnot and social media. I'm very anti-ratings. I understand ratings. I know their importance of putting a grape or a winery or a region or even a country on the map, but you can't drink points. It full stop. Nobody can argue that with me. So I don't care. You know, I had two guests arguing last week over which California Cabernet one on Venice got 4.6 one on Venice got 4.5 and they couldn't decide between which wine to buy. Oh my gosh, what the wine tastes like is the most important thing. So when you're, you know, if a sommelier says to you, this wine will taste like melted blueberries and chocolate and fuzzy kittens, whatever they're going to say. And if what they say sounds appealing to you, then you're probably going to like that wine. So keep it simple. I want light, medium, or full bodied. If we're talking about red. Sure. You want fruit forward, new world. You want earthy and rustic old. If it's white, do I want crisp and dry? Do I want luscious and sweet? Do I want a bit of oak? So, you know, if you don't know those things, still engage your sommelier. So that's always going to be the number one thing is, is ask questions and don't be shy about what you don't know. That's why we're there. I have a job because you don't know. That's awesome. Let's right. be, let's be good partners on this and, you know, and have some idea of what price range you're going to want to go to. It's an, always an uncomfortable question, but you know, ultimately, you will come back to and what kind of budget did you have in mind? 
And that's very important. And don't be shy about it. You know, if you pick some, if you say, I want to spend $80 tonight, fantastic. If I have the wine you're looking for at 60, that's the wine I want you to have because you'll come back. And, you know, I'm not going to, if you say you want to spend 80, I'm not going to try to get you to 100. It's, you know, my goal is to create the best experience, mm -hmm. not to get every single penny out of you tonight that I can. That's a flawed sense of, you know, don't, you know, I know from an ownership or business perspective, you want to generate revenue, but you can generate revenue two ways. Once you're tonight, or I create the best experience so that you come back three times this month. One of those does create more money. So it's an overall picture, I guess. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely mm -hmm. true. And uh, I think these are very valuable tips, um, uh, you know, Robert, that you've shared with your vast length breadth of experience now moving to the international scene you know the beijing winter olympics have now ended but they they during the games they displayed full robotic capacity to prepare cook and deliver meals on a large scale now robotic bartenders have been around for several years and many believe it will now increase significantly Given this backdrop, what advice would you offer aspiring wine professionals in today's environment? Wow. Um, any advice? <laughs> oh, man. Do you think they will be perhaps in time to come replaced? You know, someone will say, oh. Not 100%, no. I, I strongly disagree with, with the concept of that. I think... If I, my advice to anybody getting in the industry would be this, be yourself and be genuine. And those are the two things that any robotics really can't do. Uh, I think robotics has a time and place. You know, I don't think it has to do in restaurants of the caliber of what Ma 32 is doing mm -hmm. or any fine dining restaurant. I always ask, put it this way. I always ask that when I'm uh, when a server comes on board with us, I always say, ask them to what's the difference between service and hospitality. And there's, I don't know that there's really a textbook answer for this, but there's a way that I've always looked at it. Service is the mechanics of everything we do. You come to the restaurant, I take your order, I bring your food, I bring your bill, you're out the door. Now I can honestly teach anyone off the street how to do that. And in your case, I can teach a robot how to do that. But hospitality is the way you take care of someone. And that really comes from here. And it's literally like a relationship. Like I can't, I can't tell my significant other, you know, tell me you love me because it doesn't have weight and sustenance if I've told you to say that. If you go to a restaurant, you know, most, a lot of restaurants have two types of servers. One, um, I'm doing this because it's flexible hours and easy cash while I'm doing my acting or my school or my whatever else. Uh -huh. And the second avenue of servers are people who genuinely like to take care of people. And that's what hospitality is about. I can't, uh, you can't, I can't imagine, and I can't, you can't teach a robot that. You can't teach them how to take care of yourself. So I think if you come into the hospitality industry and you are yourself and you are genuine, you know, if I'm sitting at the airport waiting for my plane, I don't care if a robot sends, serves me a beer. But if I'm sitting at a fine dining restaurant and I'm paying $15 for a bottle of beer, I don't want a robot serving me that beer, you know? Um, 
So I don't, I don't know. Are we supposed to tip robots? How does that even work? I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think these are very pertinent uh, points, Robert, because you know what's resonating and uh, reverberating constantly here is empathy, is the human factor. You Absolutely. know, you mentioned it right at the beginning. How are you served? You know, you want to be friendly but not too casual. You know, your phrase "casual brings casualties." Yeah, <laughs> and and, and you. you, you and, and, and I, I, I also sense that it's very important. And I certainly hope that we do maintain that level of human empathy. Um, yes, the professional server or the part-time server, both are, are extremely dedicated. And uh, the environment we're living in is, is changing enormously. Now, now, talking about environment, what are your thoughts of the you know, increasingly popular movement where food and wine pairing recommendations are now moving away from only offering the traditional Western cuisine. You know, for example, oh, Barolo, or you bet, you know, a lamb or a good steak uh, or a cab would be great, um, you know, or an Amaroni. But very few people, you know, related to oh, other cuisines like Indian, Chinese. I mean, in your case, it's, it's rather different. But very few Somalias have that sort of experience where they, they will pair, will learn to pair, say, you know, I've got a, a, a tandoori, I've got a korma, I've got a Beijing duck, I've got a Sichuan peppercorn, or even Japanese and Korean food. They're not really taught that. What, what are your thoughts now that we're becoming more and more cosmopolitan? Oh, I think it's really exciting. Um, I think one of the reasons that I was really excited to, to start with Mod32 is because I get to create experiences that guests hadn't had the opportunity to have yet. How many times have you gone to a Chinese restaurant and been offered a wine list that has won spectator, wine spectator awards or was 30 pages long? You know, you don't get that offer. So, you know, more people are cluing into, hey, Mod32 has got a wine list. Hmm, I wonder why. I wonder what they're having success with. So what would you suggest becomes the thing? You know, when you look, I think for me in the city, the first really outside the dimension that really had success with us, of course, was Vigis. You know, uh, Mike Bernardo and Vikram and, 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 and Sean Nelson did amazing things with the wine program and pairing food, pairing wines to the flavors of the Indian cuisine that, that they're producing there. Uh -huh. So that was exciting. And then you see the trickle down of that to Maynam and to, you know, you know, I went to Tojo's a while back and I didn't just get sake as an offer. It's nice to go to a Japanese restaurant and yes, sake works with Japanese food, but so does so many great wines. And that's slowly starting to open up and creating more and more greater experiences ultimately. So I'm really excited about that frontier. I'm really, you know, I want, you know, go to, uh, there's an Afghan restaurant that I love eating at here in, in Vancouver. And I wish they had more wine selection because I'm tasting this food that's new and exciting to me. And like, oh my gosh, there's so many things we could do. You know, I had the pleasure of working at Chambar and then more so seeing what they were doing for brunch at Cafe Medina um, and understanding the you know, everyone loves it so much, but those Moroccan flavors, people aren't used to. It's like a new explosion of sensation for them. But when you start pairing wines to that, again, it's pretty limitless to the, to the experience that you can create. So it's, it's just exciting. I love the frontier of it. So. I think we should go restaurant hopping one day together, <laughs> you know, Robert and, uh, yeah. I'm sure we'll find some new treasures. Absolutely. You know, 
we, we, we've both been in the the wine industry for for some time we've we've poured our hearts and uh, our minds and into the dedicated world of understanding wine now for aspiring wine and spirit students in your opinion how important is it for them to learn about culture when learning about wine and spirits you know we can take any course and say bordeaux oh Oh, Medoc, Medoc, you know, oh, Saint Estef, Puyak. That's, that's just a name and a place, but it's the culture, the beating heart. How important is it, in your opinion? That's a, that's a mega question. Um, and I think it's hugely important. You know, um, I'll address it well this way that I've been very fortunate to travel the world as a sommelier, um, be that Chile, Argentina, Australia, Italy many times. Um, you know, France, all over the place. And when we started traveling to these places, we, you know, the first few, we would go airport to hotel, to winery, to winery, to winery, to airport and back. And honestly, you could be in almost anywhere in the world and, and because you don't get to see the culture of where you are. So finally, on these trips, they started to give us some time, like, let's go to the local market. Let's see the food that these people are eating. Let's see what they're doing for sports. Let's see what they're doing, whatever. Like, you know, we went to an incredible open air market in Buenos Aires when we were in Argentina and didn't just go right to Mendoza, so to speak, which was a brilliant experience and really helping understand the culture of the people. Um, I, you know, it, it kind of said you can scholastically learn everything on a book. You can be a good student, you can learn everything out of a textbook, but if you don't understand, you know, what the vegetation is like, the difference between Garrigue in France or Feinbos in South Africa or whatever it is. Um, you know, when, when I was in Bordeaux, I always knew that lamb was a natural pairing to Bordeaux wines. And then I was in Bordeaux and I was astonished at how many sheep farms that I saw. And then I realized, guess what they do in Bordeaux? They raise sheep and they make wine guess why these two things go so well together you go down south into Cahors where or Mataran Mataran big Tanat wines all they do is raise duck for duck confit you need a big powerful wine for duck confit um, so regional food and regional wine started to become more evidently clear to me as I traveled more and really started to understand those kind of things you know Pinot Noir in Oregon they raise a lot of ducks in Oregon you know whatever whatever it may be so that cultural thing, um, understanding the people who make the wine and how they live, what they do, um, you know, it really opens up a lot of understanding, I think, and fundamentals in wine. So that's really important. Um, right. I, I, and, and I uh, agree with you, uh, you know, wholeheartedly because part of the Asia Pacific Wine and Spirit Institute we have online classes and every single course that we have has a very strong element of culture, which um, is, is the, as I mentioned, is the beating heart of any student. You've mentioned it, um, there's, there's the statistical places, there's the name places, there's the regions, but it's, it's, it's rather hollow. It's, it's, it's there, we know about it, but it's that sort of cold stainless steel it's not oozing that Robert Stummelchuk warmth and, and vitality to it, you know. So um, I, I, I think that's um, 
very important, certainly with the Apwazi culture and what we've done. Now, Robert, you, you've got a beautiful background uh, behind you. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and I see a, a particular bottle of wine and a map of Bordeaux behind for your for your study oh right sure. right 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 is that is there is there a particular reason why that particular bottle is it something you had recently or is there a story behind it uh this is uh this is a hermitage from chabouillet it's a special bottle and it was sentimental when i uh, had passed my advanced with the quartermaster sommeliers i came back to vancouver and uh, my best friend trevor from big white was in town Hannah, and, right? yeah trevor hannah he brought um he brought an, I brought a 1990 uh, Mouton Rothschild to dinner and he brought this bottle. And this is uh, Jabolet's Chevalier de Sternberg, 1988 vintage. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, I can still taste it. Like, and that was quite a few years ago, but we went and we sat at the bar at what was then Wildebeest restaurant. And we drank those two bottles and uh, yeah, I just, it happened to be there. I don't, I didn't, uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing. And I mean, I, th I, I think that in itself is, is truly exemplary of what wine is. It's, it's a milestone and, 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 it, and it, it captures our heart and it walks with us as we take our footsteps down this journey called life. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's very poetic that way. It, it, it kind of leads me to the fact that one of the things I always recommend people do is keep wine. Wine is circumstantial depends on where you are, how you're enjoying it, who you're enjoying it with, whatever the occasion is. I don't drink bottles like that every day. I can't afford to. <laughs> that was, that's a very expensive bottle of wine. But, um, you know, again, we were celebrating. It was a milestone for me passing and getting my green pin, which was amazing. And, um, you know, we had, he had bought that wine when I had bought the 1990 Mouton. And, you know, we were, so we were sharing it together. But I mean, last night, uh, casually ordered pizza with a friend and, you know, crushed a $15 bottle of red, like, you know, so circumstantial, right? There's, it's different Absolutely. if you're, if you're drinking a bottle down in the Spanish banks, or if you're sitting in front of a fireplace on a bearskin rug, or you're sitting in a five, you know, five-star dining room with gold cutlery. So those are different wines for different occasions, right? Well, talking about different occasions. So let's talk about the bearskin, you know, not the bearskin rug, but let's talk <laughs> about the, um, um, gold cutlery and more finer aspect of, of a, a restaurant experience, that would be the first scenario. The second scenario would be the very casual. What, you know, you can select any wine and food pairing that you, you could have. What, what two uh, pairings with food and wine would you choose? One for the um, fine dining and one for the casual. Wow. Um... Well, if I went for casual right now, uh, I'm enjoying a lot of reds out of the Bierzo region of Spain, you know, something that you can get a nice, it's the really popular red grape there called Menthia, mm -hmm. kind of Pinot Noir-esque. Uh, I would probably, you know, you can get a nice $20, $25 bottle of Bierzo and honestly have it with, uh, you know, just like a really simple pot roast, some stewed kind of meat, you know, something with a really soul to it, a really comforting kind of thing. Uh, if I went all the way to the high end, wow, I would probably these days, 
It's not really the season for it, but I would. But you're probably... not paying Robert. Someone yeah. else is paying. <laughs> so let's let's hear the the uh, real goods. Then I would probably do something really obscure, like starting with caviar and really good beluga caviar with some uh, 2004 Salon Champagne. And then I would transition probably into, you could do like a nice Wagyu steak, Wagyu ribeye, and do that with something obscene, like, I don't know, you could probably go any first growth Bordeaux. You know, I'm very fond of both Lafitte and Hoprion, you know, a nice 57 Hoprion, that would be great. That's a memorable bottle for me. You know, I don't have the $8,000 around to buy it right now, or probably more than that these days, but you know, yeah, it depends. Little morel mushrooms on top, for sure. <laughs> well, you know, I, I can see you'd be the, the, the ultimate guest to have at a table. Now, while I've had the pleasure of your company, Robert, how do others find out about you? Um, well, you definitely can come and reserve a table at Mott 32 here in Vancouver any night that I'm there. Uh, I don't need to be there for it, but of course, if you want to see me, that's great. Um, cause we, um, but you can also find me on the Instagram under Robert Stonecheck and you can find me on my YouTube channel, which, um, I've been away from doing videos for a few months because we've been working so diligently on getting Mott 32 back up and running. Um, but yesterday I laid out a shooting schedule for the next three months. So I'll start probably in two weeks, I'll start filming again and start uploading every couple of weeks, new videos, uh, on YouTube under my name. And I do three series there. I do uh, wine talk, which is educational stuff. I do bottle talk, which are where wines are reviewed, never rated. And then I do behind the label. Um, and, you know, it's new. I've only got 25, 30 videos there, but I had to learn rather quickly how to edit, shoot, get better audio. You know, I, what's a ring light? I didn't know what a ring light was until last year. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, you can find me on social media, uh, TikTok even. I, 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 that's, you know, I, I watch you on TikTok all the time. So um, I'm still trying to figure TikTok out and I just don't have the time right now, but I will be coming up more and more through TikTok. But uh, I'm there now with a few videos and trying to go viral. <laughs> well, it's wonderful. I can't wait till we do that. You've been listening to Wine Buzz Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave a review or share it with a friend. Apwazi is an online wine and spirit institution dedicated to promoting culture and diversity through the world of education. If you're looking to get started, we have a free online course that we are giving out to all our listeners. For more information, head to apwazi.com. That's A-P-W-A-S-I dot com.